You're listening to the Transforming Society podcast. I'm Richard Kemp, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Nigel Thrift, current chair of the Committee on Radioactive Waste Management and visiting professor in the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford. Nigel is also a former vice-chancellor of the University of Warwick, former pro-vice-chancellor for research at the University of Oxford, and is emeritus professor at the University of Bristol, among so many other hats and accolades. Nigel's book, The Pursuit of Possibility, published by Policy Press, digs into whether research universities have lost their way. Research is at the heart of innovation, and sometimes that innovation is life or death. No better example, perhaps, than the COVID-19 vaccine, which required emergency funding, resources, and collaboration to save countless lives at the time, and continues to do so today. In his book, Nigel details what research universities are for and what they've become, and why they should be treated differently to other universities. He critiques policy and university leadership that have led to budget squeezes, cultural shifts, and a possible erosion of quality in research. And Nigel also offers extensive suggestions of what we can do to save these essential institutions and see them thrive into the future. Nigel Thrift, welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Thanks, Rich. Thanks so much for coming on today. This book, it really it really had me questioning a lot of things I thought I understood about universities. And uh, um, actually, um, yeah, your book, your book argues that that research universities should be treated to differently to other universities, how they run themselves, their funding and others. Uh, before reading your book, I didn't I didn't know there was even any difference between universities. Could you explain this for our listeners? Yes, of course. First thing to say, uh, at current count, there's about 142 uh, universities in the UK. We can argue about that because there are different ways of counting universities one way or the other, but that's the membership of Universities UK. It's simple. I'm arguing that basically around about 40 universities are, are, are really research intensive universities. I think that's the most important thing to say. It's not to mm. say that the other universities don't de- do research, but that these 40 or so universities are research intensive. The research they do has many qualities. One, there's a lot more of it, a lot mm-hmm. more of it. Two, the research is or certainly should be of very high quality. In turn, all that research means more academics who are active researchers, lots of specialised buildings and equipment, so you've got massive sunk costs of one kind or another. And in theory, at least, budgets that allow such an expensive enterprise as research, and it is expensive, to be carried out. So that's really what the difference is that I'm making. I think it's important to say that doesn't mean that I think other universities are somehow or the other less good or something like that. That's ridiculous. It's just that they do different things. They do some research, but they also do lots of other things as well. I want to concentrate on the institutions that are really pushing research. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, that certainly came across. The, uh, is, it, is it helpful than to call all universities universities. Is there is there Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean apart from anything else, I mean that is never going to change, come what may. But it's a generic term now. Mm. And it it basically covers a very large numbers of quite different kinds of institution. That's all there is to it. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Nigel. Uh, well, fo- yeah, we're going to focus on research universities today. So thanks so much for that explanation there. You show that there are three main so because you were you were talking about that the, the research is you know, funding intensive and that you show that there are three main sources for funding for research universities outside outside of the student populace coming in every every year. Um, you've got Research England's block grant. 
which is based on research excellence, project funding from the government or governments. And then uh, there's research charities like uh, Cancer Research UK, for example. Who decides on the funding for research universities and what and what parameters proves what they call research excellence? Yeah, right. So basically, you've already said who decides on the the funding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's those three bodies. So I, I or those Research England, which is part of U- U- UK research and innovation, UK research and innovation, which through uh, its its research councils and various other bodies actually does project funding, and then various research charities like like Welcome, for example, which is a very, very large research operation in its own right. Mm. What is Welcome? Sorry, Nigel. Nigel? It's the Welcome Trust. It mainly does medical science research. Mm. Mm. Going on from that, though, I think you missed one other funder, Mm. Uh, that is universities themselves. Okay. So uh, actually, they n- nowadays spend a large amount of their own money on funding research. Probably around, uh, we can argue about this because how you derive the figures uh, mm. uh, is, is certainly challenged in all sorts of ways, but it could be as much as 4.9 billion that universities themselves are putting into the research pot. Wow. You might ask, well, where's that money coming from? I was from? about to. <laughs> uh, yeah. The other, the other money is coming from either the government or charitable causes. The money in universities basically is mainly coming from international student fees. Mm. So when you said uh, research outside of students, that's not exactly true, actually. Uh, international students are contributing to the research pot. And therein lies a bit of a problem, which we might come on to later, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's important to note that. And that, that again, is, is, is interesting. But it means that there's a, a diverse group of funders, one way or the other, actually. And um, they're looking for quite different kinds of things a lot of the time. But all of them, I would think, would claim that they were doing excellent research, even if it's research of different kinds. Mm. You'd be surprised if they weren't. Um, I don't think anyone really puts up a sign saying, we're not doing very good research Uh, (laughs) so uh, I think you know it's it's important to note that therefore it's quite a diverse system although government funding is still the most important pot right does that uh does that make for quite a fragile existence for research universities then uh fragile is not quite the right word um it depends on which research universities you are so if you're oxford and cambridge Mm. uh for example, you have some large endowments and they are, uh, as a result, considerably less fragile than some other universities. But after that, universities are particularly beholden to the ups and downs of government funding uh, and so on and so forth. And that, that, that can cause problems, of course. Now, the taxpayer has every right to, to question how good the research is that universities are doing. And one of the things that comes around every six or seven years now is a thing called the Research Excellence Framework, which Mm. tries to work out how good the research is that universities are actually doing. And, you know, that's a quite legitimate exercise. I mean, you know, people are paying their taxes. They have a right to know that the research they're doing is as good as it can be because it's important for the country and the payback that comes from it. But uh, it it causes problems. Um, Some people think that research excellence is one thing. Some people think it's another. I'm pretty clear about what research excellence is. But again, that's neither here nor there at this point. Thanks, Nigel. Uh, You uh, you mentioned uh, students 
uh, international students um and uh, yeah i wanted to ask about students in general that um that one of the in in your book um it's quite clear that one of the most prominent changes for universities has been scale but many universities um you you were quoting figures showing that basically many universities have doubled their student intake in the last 15 years uh, what is driving this focus on growth and what's been the effect on research in universities I mean, most universities, I wouldn't say they doubled a lot of the time, but they've certainly mm. increased their numbers considerably. Okay. And um, we can argue about this in a number of ways. But for me, at least, it, it's it's problematic when it gets beyond a particular point because it starts to change the nature of the institution as much as anything. But what that's meant is that especially some of the research intensive universities have taken, although they're stopping now, increasing numbers of British undergraduates. Uh, but a lot of the growth has been in postgraduate talk courses. And that actually mm. uh, has mainly been from international students coming in and going out again. And that's been large numbers of people coming in. And that has produced in turn all kinds of other things. So it's produced uh, a big surge in turnover, which has been spent on buildings. It's been spent on student facilities. It's been spent on new staff. It's been spent on pension contributions. It's been spent on substituting for research overhead shortfalls, as I said before. Mm. But I don't think this model is really sustainable over the long term. And we can argue about why that is. One reason is because it's all very well to say every student, that every person who wants to go to university and reaches a particular standard should be able to. Mm -hmm. But it's another matter for governments to pay for it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think we've probably reached the limits of that for all sorts of reasons. Going on from that, though, I think it's also, and we come back to fragility here, after a while, you get to the point where if you're not getting uh, an amount of money for undergraduate students, the tuition fee each year, which is near to the cost of teaching them, then you have to subsidise that as well as the research. And that's the reason that universities are in a fragile position at the moment. They're trying to, you know, basically sub too many things all at once. And it's just not possible to do that easily. I think on top of that, I, I think that there are many universities that would have done better if they'd actually kept a bit smaller and kept, if you like, the kind of esprit de corps that you get from being a smaller university. You're now getting to the point where management tends to become increasingly distant from academics, and not as a plot or some kind of megalomaniac uh, move, uh, but simply because you've got so many uh, different kinds of things that you're trying to do with students, and um, you need more administrators to do that, and so on and so forth. It, it's also, I think, really and seriously, sense of community is actually a really important thing, not just for students, though it's very important for students. You, you mm. see that. Uh, people will say, well, I can remember when I went to university, you know, there were 40 or 50 people in my class. Now it might be 150 and I don't know a whole load of them. Right. And it's quite alienating, actually. And for staff, it's also a bit difficult as well, uh, I think. I think they, they feel distant from, from what's going on a lot of the time. Going on from that, of course, 
There are other problems with the expansion of students. You'll know in Bristol, student accommodation. Absolutely. You know, really, really, really problematic. Uh, And then on top of that, not only is government not paying the full whack for teaching students, but now the grant for students, the loan to be precise, Mm -hmm. is also below living standards. And that, again, is a real problem. So the system, in a sense, is not really working particularly well at this point in time for anybody. And I don't think I'm trying to be negative about it. I'm just saying, though, this is a struggle, Mm -hmm. a, a real struggle. And I think at some point, something will have to give or the quality of what's on offer will actually start to slowly decline. Yeah, the uh, makes me think about how uh, like students might start kind of thinking with their wallets in terms of I'm not I've, I've spoken to uh, other academics about the um, kind of student experience before about um more like, you know, am I going to get a job at the end of it? Um, yeah. And is and that's worth money. Uh, well, you know, what's that worth? Sorry to me. But also in this case of like, you know, what's uh, um, what's the standard of teaching worth to be in these universities? And what's the, the the standard of research that I can get involved with at these universities? What's that worth to me? And will will people start or students, sorry, start voting with their feet? Well, students are starting voting for their with their, <laughs> uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, I don't think there's as yet massive amounts of evidence that students are thinking, right, university is not worth going to. OK, mm. but when they are talking about going to university, they're increasingly going for the more utilitarian subjects, if I can put it that way. That's not knocking the subject. It's true. Computer science, for example. And um, that's that's I'm, I'm not even vaguely surprised by that decision if you look at the economic climate at the moment and you look at what students are being launched into as a job market what a surprise that they're teaching that they're choosing things which they think will get them jobs but i think at the same time it is a bit of a tragedy because actually university used to be about also giving you time to think and uh Um, work through all kinds of other subjects that you might be interested in. And increasingly, people basically haven't got that time, not least because lots of students are now out doing jobs. And I think people forget that. Uh, And that, again, causes all kinds of issues in a way. Everything has become much more focused. I'm not saying it's got worse. It's different from what it used to be. But I have to say, uh, if I was a student nowadays, I'm not really sure. I, I, I'm not sure I'd be desperately keen um, on going to into some vast class of some kind or the other. Uh, whether you have a choice about that, of course, is another matter altogether. Now, I wanted to talk about uh, kind of change as well in in universities because um, you say you say um, that free speech should be available to everyone, and and uh, um, and that's uh, you know come up in plenty of news cycles for university news cycles. Um, rather than no platforming at university campuses, you you favour allowing all speakers so that concepts can be challenged. Uh, I think I've understood this correctly. Um, do you see a limit or a danger to, to free speech? Well, I see a danger to not having free speech. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me be very clear about that. But um, I, I think the first thing to say, okay, um, actual documented uh, instances of people being cancelled or no platformed are relatively rare compared to the number of uh, different events that are going on. But the fact is, I think unless um, someone is sort of trying to incite violence, 
which anyway is probably illegal, or is doing something which is clearly offensive. And there are people who who basically are just trying to be unpleasant for the sake of it. I think you have to let people make their views. Mm. And the reason I think that is because I think free speech is at the core of what a university is about. Whole point of universities teaching and research is what I would call disobedient thinking. (laughs) And that means you're not obedient to anybody. You're not obedient, you know, to current grains of thought, for example. You're also you're challenging them as much as you are uh, older uh, currents of thought. And I think that's important to note. You're not there as a university to confirm people's prejudices. And teaching shouldn't be about that. Uh, it would be disastrous if it was. Uh, and that means that sometimes you're going to make people uncomfortable. And again, I think you have to be sensitive to that fact. Let me be very clear. Uh, And you don't have to make them uncomfortable for the sake of it. But there are, for example, a whole series of subjects in the arts and humanities where it's difficult not to be uncomfortable about it. Mm. Uh, And actually, why, why wouldn't you want to be? So I think that's the real reason. Now, of course, there are limits to free speech. Everyone says, oh, well, really, you're saying anyone can come in, you know, and we'll let I don't know anyone say anything. Uh, No one thinks that. Um, I think what they do think, though, is that whatever the limits are, they have to be fairly broad because there are all kinds of people who who will be arguing, oh, well, that's deeply offended me. And uh, therefore, uh, that's that's my free speech, which has been actually limited. But I'm not really very keen on that as an argument, if I'm honest. I don't think it hurts at all. You have to remember, a lot of people have not thought a lot about some of these things. uh, And um, where they get to learn about them is by arguing backwards and forwards with people. And that's great. And that's actually what universities are about. Uh, whether you like it or not. So, and some people don't, I'd be the first to say, but I do. You were saying earlier about um, the kind of, the way that people, the way the students are coming to university now, they're more likely to kind of hone in on a subject and not necessarily broaden their horizons by going to university, but but focusing more on the thing that they've come to university for. Is that changing the the culture of the the university where you might go to uh, debate ideas, you know, the entire time that you're at university, uh, and you know, and get uncomfortable, and uh, you know, and come out on the other side with kind of a, a richer view, you know, in, yeah. in so many so many ways, including ways that you still might disagree with, but at least you kind of understand them more. First thing to say is, I don't think that university is there just to make people uncomfortable. Okay, I mean, I, I, <laughs> we can go too far with this. I I don't think you know the average physics lecture really is is trying to make people uncomfortable in that kind of way, but it's just that when particular issues come up uh, that do make people uncomfortable, you need to talk them through, not just say, oh, no. Mm. So I think that's important. Going on from that, I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not teaching in in universities anymore, so I don't have the the face-to-face experience of, of this. But my sense is that students are just as keen on getting um, ideas uh, and so on and so forth. But the problem is the way they get them is now narrowed. And the result is they're getting them in all kinds of ways which might not always be the greatest ways they could get them. <laughs> and um, I'm not saying that things like uh, TikTok can't be used to produce ideas, but I don't think they're, they're really um, 
uh, the forefront of what one would want to do in this area. <laughs> and I think the real tragedy as well is there are so many great things you can learn. Uh, and um, I want institutions which still allow students to be able to do that and feel that actually they don't just have to knuckle down and get through this, that and the other and get out the other end. That's more difficult than it used to be. When I was a student myself in the going, I went to university in the early 2000s and I found I found that too, that it was by that point, it was more of a um, you're here to you're here to study your subject and and yeah, and come out the other end to use that phrase um, with with your degree and therefore get in, get into the job market. And that's uh, that wasn't what I was expect uh, as, a, as a teenager before I got into university. That wasn't what I was expecting. Uh, and and I, I when I got to university, I thought, oh, maybe I was being naive then about what what to expect but but it sounds like from what you're saying that it was more kind of a, a place to a place to challenge yourself more than get so specific about one thing um that well, used to be. i mean yes it used to be for example and i still like this i mean i did a degree where uh you did three subjects in the first year two in the second and one in the third oh wow uh, and um i still still love those kinds of degrees i have to say but I sadly, I think they're a thing of the past. They've gone down with the dinosaurs, I think. But actually, it allowed you really to explore things that you otherwise wouldn't have known anything about. Mm. My my wife's from the the US, and she was telling me about her university experience, and that they sounded very much like that. And I don't. And she went to the university in the mid uh, the two thousands as well. Uh, so maybe that's changed there. I don't know. And possibly you know more well, about it. Yeah, I mean, I think US degrees are four-year degrees, remember? Mm. Uh, so they have a bit more time, in a way, and that makes it a bit easier. But also, there has been, in the past in the US, the idea of a liberal arts degree, where you, you basically have a more general education. But that's changed in the US as well. I okay. mean, basically, uh, people are now very job-oriented. Uh, in fact, probably more than in the UK at the moment. I, it's difficult to judge, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. I'm, I, I'm, I, as I want to be underlined again, I don't blame students for this. Of course. I really don't. I mean, it, <laughs> uh, it's, it, but I do think, for example, one could shoehorn in some courses, uh, for example, in arts and humanities degree on science, in science degrees on arts and humanities, these kind of things, just to give people a sense of a wider world. Mm -hmm. Some universities do do this, actually, but not many. All right. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, in your in your book as well, you, you note that the investor, George Soros, offered one billion dollars for a global university network. Uh, meanwhile, universities like Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, they they have plenty of cash that they could use to help other institutes, um, but they're but they're not. Research universities need to collaborate. You make that you make that clear in your book. But is a culture of competitiveness stopping this? Universities do collaborate, and in in, in the book, I, I I see a whole series of different instances of that. Interestingly, in, part of that has been because incentives have been produced by um, U the UK Research and Innovation and others for universities to collaborate. It is difficult because universities are, if you like, in in competition with each other and also they're cooperating with each other. There's this mm. awful word cooperation, which is used to, <laughs> to talk about that. But I think increasingly um, 
it's going to be the case that, that universities will have to cooperate more. They're already cooperating over shared facilities. Um, in a sense, you have to do that now. Some of the equipment that universities need to use is unbelievably expensive. <laughs> and and uh, um, you can't have it just to yourself. Uh, so that's the first thing to say. The second thing is that there are quite a number of regional combines, uh, universities which are cooperating regionally with their nearest neighbours, especially. And then thirdly, of course, universities cooperating because individual academics are cooperating with academics from other universities, and they do that naturally. Mm. Um, but I think at this point in time, really, this comes on to something more general. I think we just need to rethink the system. I think it's abidingly clear that if we carry on with the system that we now have, we're just going to continue to struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need to find ways around that. And, and I'm sure we can come on to that. I said at the top of the show that without research universities, you, we wouldn't have seen a vaccine against COVID-19 come as quickly as it did. You make you make clear in your book, and you've been you've, you were just saying saying it uh, in part there. You make clear in your book that these are essential entities, but that they're also under threat. And I just wanted you, yeah, wanted you to, if you don't mind, going into more detail about how how they're under threat and um, what do we need to do to protect university research universities going forward. Yeah, so I will give you I'll give you a rundown of threats. Now, first thing I want to say before I do this is that there are whole series of British universities which are absolutely fantastic okay and they still are at the moment many of them just wonderful however I what I'm worried about is that they get increasingly eroded in terms of what they're able to do and that I think is because of a whole series of threats and the first of those is what I call proliferation universities have basically grown into kind of all-purpose machines you may not see this, but actually universities are doing practically everything at this point in time. Um, I just went through the list. Attracting foreign direct investment, becoming civic leaders and regional mainstays and prime movers in levelling up, boosting community connectedness and general social capital, providing major cultural services, the art galleries and so on, the uh, the uh, all of the other kinds of things investing in mental health that used to be a an NHS um, uh, responsibility but increasingly mm. it's become a, a university responsibility training apprentices birthing startups investing in business accelerators plugging gaps in the student maintenance system promoting access and social mobility working with schools vast numbers of different things and each of those has their own bureaucracies associated with them by the way <laughs> uh, um, and i increasingly feel that this has got to stop we're kind of we're, we're starting to dilute the purpose of the university as we carry on picking up more and more things. And I think as well, actually, it's also because basically, in some ways, universities are being seen as, you know, a solution when there's no money. Right. So what you say is, right, so we'll instead, we'll, we, we, we can't do this. It's, all, it's proving incredibly difficult. We'll get universities to do it. Now, I know that's unfair. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but not that unfair. Um, it's, it, it's, it's really a problem in that sense. It's also a problem that 
Um, increasingly, universities are made up of different kinds of bureaucracies, each fighting their own corner. And again, I'm not sure that that's massively healthy, I have to say. Mm. There's a management dictum, which uh, is used in business. Focus on what you do best and execute ruthlessly. The, the trouble is, if, you, if you're trying to do best on so many different kinds of things, it becomes very difficult to execute. Right. Uh, and I think universities do the best job they can with this, and some of them on some things doing remarkable jobs. But I think there needs at least to be, at some point, a meeting where everyone gets a list of all the things they're doing and says, do we really need to do that? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there we are. That's one thing. Second thing I think is, uh, regulation, government regulator, uh, the Office for Students, has proved in the past a little bit too intrusive, I think. And its regulation has become perhaps a bit too heavy. There was a, a good reason for it in a way. I, I don't deny any of that. Uh, and I have some sympathy with the Office for Students because of that. But at the same time, I think the problem they faced was that they moved from they moved into examining processes rather than outputs. Right. And as you do that, you become more and more uh, involved in telling people what to do about this and what to do about this and what to do about that. And I think that that can be very problematic. And interestingly, Office for Students, as I understand it, is starting to move away from that kind of model and going back to simply looking at outcomes. Mm. And um, I'd like to think that that's the model that regulators should be using generally anyway, but also somewhat some a body like UKRI, UK Research and Innovation, should be using as well. Otherwise, you basically sink into a mire <laughs> <laughs> over time. And I don't think that's good for anyone, actually, for anyone. So I think that's another threat. So that's um that's uh that kind of mimics or mirrors your your view on research excellence as well, knowing that uh, student output should be before processes in the same way that we should be looking at research output the reason being that that universities can that there'll be different universities will do things differently uh as long as the outcomes are good um i'm not convinced that one needs to be spending a lot of time down in the weeds if i can put it that way um i think it can be a bit of a problem actually but anyway we, i'm the, the, the argument about this will go on to infinity i'm sure <laughs> Then going on from that, and we've already talked about it, the funding system for English undergraduate students in particular is just not working. And mm. actually, I don't really know of anyone who really thinks it's optimal. <laughs> <laughs> there might be people who think, oh, well, we can tweak it and then it can be all right again. But I don't really know of anyone who thinks it's optimal at this point in time. And um, if we got to a point where 75% of student maintenance loans or even higher is being spent on actually somewhere to live, then that seems to me to be slightly problematic. Yeah, indeed. Um, Especially now, if uh, in the case of Bristol, you don't even get to live in Bristol because there's no there's no housing left, which uh, you know we hear more and more. I think there's four places in the country where Bristol being one of them where there are real problems mm. uh, and um, and then some others where there are substantial problems. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think it's it's right. And it's also that um, in the book I say, well, part of that might be that we're wedded in England in particular to a model of what students should do, which is go away to university. 
I'm not really sure that that's necessary a lot of the time. Uh, but what it is, is costly. <laughs> uh, and that is Definitely. no doubt. And um, I, I still think that that might be thought about a bit more. Third threat, um, system for funding research. Uh, because universities don't get the full cost of the research grants, the, re the research grants that they're carrying out, uh, and they're subbing that from international student fees. That works to a point, but uh, only to a point. And we can argue about what a full economic cost is, but I, I think it's a theological argument so far as a, a podcast is concerned. Mm. Uh, um, but at the same time, uh, the fact of the matter is that I think something has to stop at this point. Mm. Uh, um, I personally think it would be better to go to 100% overheads and do less research because you bite the bullet at that point and then you start again. I, I think anything else is going to be, um, in the end, we will just carry on. This has been a, a continual plaint uh, in universities over what? 20, 30 years? I would think at least, God, oh. I was... I can. I was on a committee back in the mists of time, which was looking at this. So I mean, you know, it it, it never goes away. Yes. Uh, but I'm not sure it's a, a good thing. If you're then trying to subsidise your research, and now you're trying to subsidise teaching, you get this this crunch, and that's the final threat. There's a pretty serious financial crisis in universities. Mm -hmm. And again, we can argue about how much of a crisis there is, but I don't think anyone says that everything is great. <laughs> now, university leaders never say everything's great uh, when it comes to these things, but actually everything really isn't great. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really a bit of a problem, and I really am not sure how it's going to be got out of. It's, it's, it's even more of an issue than one might think, uh, because you, you've heard there's no money often enough. And um, even if there was money, universities would be down the queue. Right, of course. And so um, somehow or the other, universities are going to have to struggle on. But I'm glad I'm not leading a university uh, at this point in time. It's, it's tough. It really is. It's tough for the people in the universities. It's mm. tough for the people leading them, actually, because getting the books to balance is really a major issue. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But then the other thing I think, and I think the other thing you were asking, was about what, in a sense, we need to do about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first thing to say is remind ourselves that universities are incredibly important. <laughs> in and amongst all of these issues and problems and uh, 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 it, it gets lost. How universities think in the sense of how their academics work, which is through, if you like, a kind of applied scepticism about most things. <laughs> you couldn't do science if you weren't sceptical about what you were reading in front of you. Right. So those kind of things are a, really one of the major, major things which has made the world a good place to be. In some cases, it's made a bad place to be, but mainly a good place to be. And I think, you know, we, we, we need to remember that academics really are important. They're not like subsidiary to the university uh, and all these other things. They are really the heart of it. Mm. And we need to kind of re-describe them. I I've been trying to do this, and I don't think I've got it right. 
But I've been saying that we need to talk about them as creatives now, because talking about them as academics brings with it in the public mind all kinds of baggage, which really isn't helpful. You know, whether it's a Daily Star talking about boffins the whole time, which it loves to do, or whether it's, oh, you know, these people are just flippity gibbets or or what have you. Um, So all of these things need to be somehow put to one side and we need to re-describe what academics do to show just how great it actually is and I sometimes think that that is being lost I'm not quite sure some academics do a really good job of making sure that they're demonstrating it's not been lost to the public I, I think of the rise of podcasts and things like that for example except this podcast Anyway, um, uh, having said that, I I think really we are going to need to think about the future of research universities. And there have been a lot of people now who've been talking about the Robbins report, which came out in the 1960s uh, and was really meant to be a reset of the whole system. Okay, now we can argue about whether it really was. And again, there's an enormous amount of argument about what that what what, was that really that or that. Uh, But um, having said that, I think it's immensely important at this point in time to say, right, we genuinely got to have an inquiry and we've got to have everything on the table. We've actually at this point in time got to start thinking about redesigning the university system so at least it works for most people. And that will mean having to think quite seriously about all sorts of things. It will also mean having a degree of humility. British universities, you know, tend to think, you know, we're, we're pretty much the best universities in, in the world and, and so on and so forth. And British universities are really great. There's no doubt about that. But there are other systems which are really good too. And there's quite a lot we could take from them if we really tried. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in that area. So I think that's the thing for me. Uh, and it's in the book and elsewhere. I've kept saying, let's actually have a proper examination of the whole system and how it works no longer trying to kind of cut it up into little bits of inquiry about little bits of this and little bits of that. So that's my view. Thanks so much, Nigel. It's been a real, real pleasure to to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time, Nigel. I'm going to let everybody know where to find your book in a moment, um, but I just wanted to know first uh, where, where we can find you. Maybe you have somewhere online uh, people can find you. No, no, I don't have anything online at all. Um, I'm not by any means a recluse or something of that kind, as indeed this podcast shows. But at the same time, I I think, like quite a few people, I I think there are downsides to being publicly available, which I'm not quite so keen on. So I suppose the best way of putting it is, if you want to find me, I'm sure you can. Uh, And I'm sure you or somebody else can put these people in contact with me. And I'm I'm happy to talk. I mean, I, I don't have even vague problem about that at all <laughs> that's a, that's a, a long way around saying no i don't have any social media or anything <laughs> <laughs> thanks nigel that was a that's a great answer the pursuit of possibility by nigel thrift is published by policy press you can find out more about the book by visiting policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk and also transformingsociety.co.uk